Hello, lovelies. Before we get started, I would like to remind you that you can still get your best friend for winter, the snuggle dress at impactfashionnyc.com. This is the dress that I wear, I want to say an embarrassing amount of times a week, but it's really not because there are so many different ways you can style it. And I feel like it's different every single time. Um, and also it's a piece for my line, so I can wear it as many times as I want and nobody really cares. So it's great. But this is, it's a sweater dress with a cocoon body shape and a really cool voluminous sleeve that's like not too crazy out there and whatever. It's my best selling winter dress. It's the piece you have to have in your closet. It really is. This winter's colors are the olive and the mauve, both of which I still have in stock. The mauve is a little bit on the low side, but I'm pretty sure that you can still get most sizes in it. Uh, and then we have the black as well. And I still have a few, like I think maybe four mustard left from last year, if that's something that you'd like. Um, that you like also the mustard is a super popular color. I still wear it a lot also. So uh, make sure to check out the snuggle dress. It comes in sizes extra small through 2X, which is equivalent to my regular size range of sizes two through 24. It's also a stretchy fabric with a lot of room in the body. So if you normally are kind of on the edge of my size 24, then you might want to try the 2X. It might work for you. See that and all of my other designs at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with the Orthodox Jewish producer of TV's Arranged about how her career got started. She shares how she played a huge part in creating the Orthodox film industry and organically moved from there to making TV shows, her thoughts on the Orthodox movie as a genre, and the portrayal of Orthodoxy in the media. things that I think those who aren't a part of the Orthodox community fail to realize or appreciate is the diversity with which we practice our religion. Ronit Poland Tarshish began her career and still associates with a much more insular version of Orthodoxy than I grew up with. And the differences in our and her audience's experiences was what struck me most about this fascinating conversation. I was a very interesting little kid, if I may say so myself. <laughs> I had a very rich fantasy life and um, yeah, like, like my worst subject was gym. You know, that was my <laughs> least favorite subject. So maybe nowadays looking back, you would say somewhat of a nerd, but you know, like the brainiac with the glasses, I got glasses in the third grade and I love to read. And when I say rich fantasy life, um, I always love to write and I just love to create characters and, and tell stories and read stories and analyze stories and think about things. And um, yeah, I'll give you one funny story to, that kind of sums it up. Uh, <laughs> we would have book reports, I think it was the fifth grade, and we would have to do a presentation. And I would always make the presentation kind of like, ultra creative and a little bit wacky. So I remember we had to do some sort of presentation about um, Julius Caesar and the eulogy Mark Antony gave him, like the famous you know, eulogy mm -hmm. when he was murdered. Um, and so I came in in a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and a fringed suede vest with a guitar 
to sing an original Western song that I had written about Julius Caesar. <laughs> I, I thought it would be really cool to like marry or like merge, you know, the two worlds of country Western and uh, ancient Rome. So <laughs> I, I would have loved to have heard that song. That sounds like a fantastic. I, I still actually remember some of the song, which is so insane. It's like imprinted on my brain. And I've been a teacher for many, many years. And when I was teaching about Julius Caesar, I actually taught my sixth grade class the song that I had written in the fifth or sixth grade about <laughs> They loved it. They walked around the halls of the school singing that song at the top of their voices. Like <laughs> that's fantastic. That's actually fantastic. So, like you mentioned, you had been a teacher. Did you know that you were always going to be a teacher? Did you always want to be a teacher? Was that it's something so that funny. you thought about? No, I, I felt very much that it was my destiny, my fate, because from the time I was in early elementary school, people were like, oh, she's a born teacher, like my teacher, because she's a teacher. Like when there's a kid in the class who doesn't understand the work, we just send Ronit to them and then, you know, then they understand it. So yeah, a born teacher. Like I always heard that. Um, my dad very, very, very much wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, I'm an only child and he had wanted to be a lawyer. And I think it didn't happen for him. I mean, he's super brilliant. He's an aeronautical engineer and he designed the F-14 um, Underachiever. fighter plane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he also, and he also has an MBA and he also has a master's in education. But he always wanted to be a lawyer of all things. So I think he thought, you know, he would a little bit live vicariously through me. Um, and one of the main reasons I didn't become a lawyer was all the pressure I had to become a lawyer. <laughs> so my, my way of rebellion was to go like, you know, the other course and teaching fit very naturally because it was a great outlet for my performance. Like I always used to say, I have a captive audience. Um, I would teach 34 students in a room, um, sixth grade for a few years, but then eighth grade for the bulk of my career. And so I had like, 34 captive 13 year olds and you know the classroom was my stage and they were there for the Ronit show so <laughs> they loved it and I loved it <laughs> that's fantastic and and I'm assuming I mean you first became known I guess we should say like within the orthodox world within the from world as someone who puts on plays you know as someone who yes. like writes and produces these like Basiakov productions basically which yes for anyone who's not familiar with what a Basiakov production is, because it's such a specific cultural. It's a niche, thing, a very niche market. Yeah, Really, yeah. really very. Basically, girls high schools, um, which Orthodox girls high schools, a certain type of them are called Basiakov schools. And they put on plays. They put on productions. There's usually one a year. It's a big deal. Like, I, oh, if you're not. It's so huge. It's so huge. Yeah, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I can't overstate how big they are, the scale of it, and how and the importance of it to the community, because these are communities that don't have any other major forms of entertainment. Like they don't watch TV and they don't go to movies. So once a year, they attend this mega play, which is basically like an off-Broadway show. I would call it comparable to an off-Broadway show. Um, we would rent off-Broadway scenery. Um, I would be working with a budget of close to $100,000. Whoa, um, what school was that? <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say. But <laughs> it's 
not atypical. Let me put it that way. In Brooklyn, it's not atypical. Oh, right. That's true. I'm a Queens kid. I'm a Queens kid. So like, (laughs) I will say this. Production is a big deal in Queens. It's not as big of a deal as it is. I know. That's that's why I kind of jumped in. Yeah, I appreciate that. I thought you would, you know, sell it, but I wanted to like really sell it. Yeah, I hear that. Okay, so, and I assume that you're working in like Barra Park and Flatbush and those kinds of communities. Correct, correct. Barra Park and Flatbush. And that's why I was saying they, unlike in Queens, where typically I believe they would be also watching TV and movies. These are like Hasidic women and girls, Hasidim, you know, um, or very, very orthodox people. I hate the term ultra-orthodox. It just has a negative connotation to me. So I'll just say very orthodox, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, women and girls who do not uh, uh, engage in social media and watch TV and go to movies. So this is really it. So a typically, you know, not every school has a hundred thousand dollar budget, but it's it's rare to find a play, you know, produced for less than sixty thousand. So let's say sixty to a hundred thousand dollar budget, depending on the you know financial abilities of the school we would get um, about a thousand women and girls a night in a huge auditorium. And most of my shows ran for five nights. So I'd be reaching an audience of 5,000 people um, on a yearly basis. And the most amazing thing was, um, my favorite part was that these were original works. Uh, They were original scripts. So I would like dream up a concept and dream up characters, you know, sitting while sitting on my bed at 1 a.m. And then three months later, I would see them in living color, speaking my words, wearing the costumes I envisioned, you know, using the props I pictured. And like they became living, breathing entities. So that was that was a power trip. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was directing it too, so I could really realize my vision for the fullest. Yeah, I I totally hear that. And so, were you doing that for the schools that you taught at? No, actually, that's a good question. I wasn't. Um, they're not necessarily connected. Because don't forget, I taught in an elementary school. I said eighth right. grade, um, and these were high schools. Right. So, at what? But my point- students. Oh my God, my students were very excited that you know Miss Poland was their teacher and she directed. So my students would show up at the play and we'd like debrief about it for days right. afterwards. And yeah, yeah, that, I'm sure that that was really fun for them because, like, I, I mean, there's there is a little bit of like a a celebrity status there. Oh, for sure, for sure, and that I can even say that like helped management because when you're the cool teacher you know it's not cool to misbehave (laughs) (laughs) I hear that oh that's good that's actually a very good teaching strategy (laughs) yeah so how many years were you working on these plays I I haven't really stopped I mean I guess you would say 20 years around 20 years I, I started very very young I started like basically in high school my first play was in, um I directed my own high school play here in Philadelphia um when I was 17 years old and they made me director of the play I can't believe they entrusted me with that but <laughs> we did not have a hundred thousand dollar budget and we did not have five thousand you know attendees here in Philly but I took it very seriously. I described a little bit, you know, the like the perfectionist child I was. I walked around with a clipboard in 12th grade and made sure everybody came to drama practice. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And that really got me hooked on directing. Like when I, after I directed that play, I'm like, 
oh my gosh, this is what I need to do with my life. I just fell in love. I had, I had always been the main parts in my high school production. So I knew I loved acting, but then when I tried directing, I'm like, wow, if acting is good, directing is even better because you get to tell all the actors like how to act. Oh, that's an interesting take on it. So in a way, yeah. like you view directing almost as like acting every part. Oh, correct. Very, very much so. Very much so. And what's really cool is that I'm able to direct people doing parts that I personally can't play. Well, it's not every person, unless, I don't know, maybe you're Meryl Streep, but you know, mm. not every person can play every part. There's a reason, you know, uh, yeah, people are, sometimes people don't like being typecast, you know, actors in Hollywood complain about that, but there's a reason you think of a certain actor in a, in a certain role, you know, I don't know, Sylvester Stallone doesn't do like romance, you know, <laughs> like, right. there's a reason. I always ended up playing very strong parts, like typically the villain actually, which I relished. <laughs> mm -hmm. Those are the funnest. Or, um, yeah, it's the baddest, the funnest. Or somebody, um, with some element of strength like I had a result of playing the damsel in distress or you know like that type but the interesting sound I was able to direct a girl who had a natural ability to play the damsel in distress I could I could draw her out and you know help her be the best damsel in distress she could be even though I personally like couldn't draw it out of myself isn't that interesting yeah, that is that is a super interesting way to to think about something. See, what's interesting to me, I have to say, is you have and had this incredible career, you know, directing Basiaco plays and putting on these Basiaco plays and and you know, doing a couple of shows a year and you know, and in that ecosystem, which is this very like you said, like very niche market but also very unique market because like it's not streaming on YouTube, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a, people it's always a, ask me, where can I watch your plays? And I'm like, I, you really can't, you know? Right. You can't, or like, I'm sure, did you sell a DVD at any point? Oh no, 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 no. Because it was, it was women's only. These productions were only for women. And they wouldn't, and they wouldn't let you make a DVD. That's surprising to me. No, so we would make a DVD, but you said sell. They would make a DVD oh. for the girls and their families and, you know, the grandmas who were unable to attend, but they wouldn't sell it in the store because, uh, yeah, this this community is, is very much, you know, separate, like, you know, male and right. female. Um, so these were girls' schools. These were all girls' schools. And... Um, yeah, they, they want to perform in front of girls and women. Like, they don't feel comfortable right. performing in front of men. So they wouldn't sell their DVD in a store where men would be watching them. Right. Um, could, so also, this, this brings up, you know, I can mention just a funny, cool point. Um, if you realize that men actually do exist in humanity, you know. <laughs> so my script did have male parts in them. So we did, like, a reverse Shakespeare where the right. girls would be wearing, you know, pants and mustaches and, you know, toupee wigs and, yeah. Yeah, I always played the lead guy in every camp play, so. Oh, that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, there's a, it, it takes a special talent. Not every girl can play a guy. And a very fun thing that I really enjoy doing is helping, helping turn these girls into guys in terms of, like, 
every last detail, even of mannerisms. And, you know, because you have to stand differently. You have to sit down differently. Yeah. You have to occupy space differently. It's not a matter of putting on a deeper voice. In fact, I really discourage them from trying to change their voice because that just sounds silly. But it's more of a, a manner in which you command space. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a body language thing. And not everybody can do that. Not every, Yeah, like I can't play a man, personally. Oh, I love doing it. I actually, even in camp, um, it's so funny. I was, um, I was just talking about this with someone. I, um, I had a couple of different suits in the camp, like costume closet that I actually put my name in. Cause I knew that like, those were my suits and that they fit well. And I liked, how they, <laughs> I liked how they looked. So it was just. Finding a girl who can play a man is like a rare find, like a gem. And then talk about typecast. Like once you find that girl, you're like, oh my gosh, she can play a man. Okay, forget it. You're, she's never going to be a princess. You know? Exactly. <laughs> we have so many girls who can be princesses and we must use this person right. only to play a man. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I'm curious with, like at what point, because now you don't work exclusively in the Orthodox community. Um, you know, you've right. you've created shows like arranged and things like that that are for a wider audience. And yeah. how, how does that happen? Like talk me through <laughs> those decisions or those circumstances that lead to making something like that happen. Okay. Yeah. So it was actually rather organic. It wasn't like, you know, on Monday, I just finished directing, you know, play for 5,000 Hasidim. And then on Tuesday, I said, you know, I think I'm going to make a show on Netflix. You know, it, wasn't right. like, it was more of a process. Um, what happened was that after years of directing these plays in, in various schools, one school in particular, Yeshiva of Brooklyn, YOB, I directed their play for like eight years. I, they're very close to my heart. Um, and I got a call one day from a tzedakah organization, a charity organization, and they called me up and this phone call, I would say, really changed the trajectory of my life. Like, I don't think I'm overstating it or you know, exaggerating. Um, they called me up and they said that they would like to raise money for their charity. So they had an idea. Could I write and direct a new play just for them? that would be put on in front of a limited audience. They don't have so much of a budget for, you know, a very uh, large auditorium or, or hall, but um, put on this play for a limited audience, but then we could video the stage, video the play, and then show this play around the world. And I said, and at that point, this was back in 2006, so over 15 years ago, the only thing that was in the very orthodox and Hasidic community, the only form of entertainment were these plays. Plays was the only game in town. There was something called slideshows, which was like, you know, pictures with a, a narrator under it. Um, but that was it. So I said to myself, wait a minute, I'm going to spend all this time and effort to, let's say, create a living room set. And then we're going to film that and show it in Detroit. So the people in Detroit are going to see, you know, the filmed version of the living room set that I worked so hard to create, or, you know, the fake car that I worked so hard to build on a stage. And anyway, they're going to be watching this in Denver. I said, wait a minute, instead of going into, since we're anyway showing it in Detroit and Denver, instead of building a living room set and then, you know, why don't we just go into a living room film that and then show it in Detroit and Denver. 
And they said to me, wait a minute, like not build a set. Like, like what's that called? Like, what is that when you go into a living room with a camera and then, <laughs> and then you show the resulting work in another city? Like, what's that called? I said, you know, actually that's called a movie. <laughs> right. That's what this is. Why can't I just make a movie? But this was very groundbreaking. This had never been done in this community. There was no such thing as an ultra-Orthodox movie or a movie targeting the Hasidic, Hasidic and super-Orthodox population. It didn't exist. So um, they actually, the charity was like, I don't know, it's like kind of avant-garde. Maybe we'll get in trouble because movies are not kosher. Movies are, you know, movies have... Uh, illicit romance movies have that language movies have all these things that they associate with you know as being trafe or unkosher mm-hmm. and I said well film is just a medium like my you know brainstorm was wait a minute film is a medium you can have an inappropriate book that you don't want your child to read or you can have an inappropriate song with inappropriate lyrics that you don't want your child to hear or a wonderful song or a wonderful book or a wonderful movie like don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. just because you don't like some movies out there in Hollywood doesn't mean that it's impossible to make an acceptable movie and this this was that like eureka moment for me they actually said oh you know thanks but no thanks it's like too avant-garde for us and I said okay I'm making this movie anyway without you like now, now I found, you know, like right, my new right. dream, my new passion, the next level, and I'm just going to do it. So I gathered up all the girls that I had been directing for the past, um, let's say, seven years um, in Bar Park and Flatbush, and they knew me well, and they knew my directing style, and I knew their acting ability, and I felt they were very well trained because I personally had trained them you know (laughs) I would have a girl that I you know would work with for the four years of high school and I got her like just where I wanted her like I I felt her acting was really top-notch so um I wrote an original script it took place during World War II in Vichy France it was called Inc I-N-K and I I still love that story it's it's still something very close to my heart. It was about a Jewish girl living in disguise in the home of a Nazi um, in Vichy, France. And she ends up using her very privileged position to help save Jewish lives. Um, In a nutshell, she steals his ink, his stamp, and she stamps exit visas to get Jews out of the country. And I loosely based it on the story of Esther in the Megillah, that you know she's a heroine who's you know put in an awful situation but god put her there specifically because she can rise to such prominence and save the jewish people so this was like an updated rigorous esther in my mind um and yeah and i had my i self-financed it i literally took like every single penny i had from my bank account (laughs) and i decided that since this was the first time a movie had ever been made in the Jewish community, I wanted it to be for a good purpose. I want people to say, oh, Ronnie's making a movie because she wants to be rich. Um, and besides, like, when you're single, you're like, yeah, what do I need money for? You know, mm-hmm. I was like, very idealistic. <laughs> so I called up High Life Line, which is a fabulous uh, charity that helps people with cancer. 
And I said to them, first of all, I said, hey, do you want to finance my movie? And they said, you know, we're in the cancer fighting business. Like, we're not really in the movie financing business. Um, I'm sorry, you know. And then I said to them, okay, how about this? How about I'll finance it? Could I give you all my proceeds? <laughs> and like, they were like, sure. sure. <laughs> They're like, yeah, uh, actually, sure. We can do that. So I literally did. I gave them tens of tens of thousands of dollars. I gave them all the profits for sure from like the first year and a half. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, while we were making this movie, it took about a year to make overall, you know, all inclusive, including pre-production and post. Um, I, I kept saying, okay, either this will be a massive hit and this will be groundbreaking and earth shattering and life changing for the Jewish community as a whole, also, not just for Roni. Um, so either it will be a huge success or I'll be put in Khairam, <laughs> which is like I'll be banned, you know? And like, yeah, like I, that, be... I don't think that people would under, and, and I'll be perfectly honest, as a, like I said, as a Queens person, I've, you know, I've been Orthodox yeah. my whole life, but I definitely don't um, fully appreciate the insularity i guess we could say of yeah. i know you don't like the term but ultra orthodox communities yeah. i would um, say very orthodox <laughs> very orthodox um cuz there is and i think that there is something really beautiful about being really closed off i i truly do i think that there are um i think that there are some superpowers that come with it and i also think that with every power, you know, what's that saying? That there's equal opportunity for good and evil. And I think that there's some really fantastic things about being really closed off and those lead to some really terrible things. But this idea that like you would put out a movie specifically like, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Like um, targeted. Geared for right, right, yeah, Like targeted, geared right. for this super niche, super insular community. There was a very real possibility that you could be like, fired from your job, not hired to do any more yes. plays and, and right. like, and banned. And, and fully I was banned. pushing the envelope. Yes. Yeah. I, it was, it was a, yeah, people should appreciate that it was a big risk. Um, it was a huge risk. And also I wasn't even married at the time. So there was the, the additional risk of like, well, I, you know, never get right. married because, oh my God, how can you marry that? You know, troublemaker. Um, I felt a little, Insulated from the risk, cushioned, if you, you know, right, um, because of a few factors. Number one, I had huge name recognition from all my plays. So I was already seen as, you know, kosher and someone from who does like solid kosher entertainment. Number two, I knew that my story was kosher. I had written it myself and I knew that I took every single precaution to make it acceptable to these audiences. And um, number three, I was giving all my money to tzedakah and I felt like Hashem would a little bit protect me, you know, yeah. or, or at the very least I could tell people like, you know, it's for a good cause and, and you're supporting this very good cause. Yeah, I hear that, that, you know, that, that all those things definitely acted as insurance policies. Out of curiosity, are you yourself Hasidic? No. So that's also a level of, of right. insulation, I guess you could say. Um, yes and no. This still was my bread and butter. I mean, being right. banned from the community would be not just, you know, I, I wouldn't even talk about a financial hit because I always did these plays on the side. I always had a, a teaching job and then I was a school psychologist as like my main form of income. But these are my friends. These are my people. These, these, this was my adopted right. community. So right. socially, it, it would have been devastating. And I want you to know, the night before showing we, we had showings on um which is like the intermediate days of 
different you holidays. Know, yeah, different holidays. It's a time I when everyone's on vacation if you're not familiar. Exactly, and they're looking for things to do. Yeah. So it was Cholamed Sukkot. Yeah, not Pesach. Um, so it was in the fall, and I self-promoted it, self-marketed it, meaning I got my friends. I mean, I didn't typically do everything, but I, I got just personal friends of mine to rent halls and rent auditoriums and rent, you know, speaker systems and and just make sure the chairs were put in and I had to find girls to collect tickets at the door and I did this all myself in fact in the credits I was a little embarrassed I had to use some aliases because I didn't want it to say like written by Roni Poland directed by Roni Poland props by Roni Poland cast of Roni Poland. <laughs> <laughs> you needed the royal like, we I it felt almost like unprofessional like oh my god can't you get anybody to work with you you know so I would just like make up aliases for myself. <laughs> That's actually it fantastic. Like I, so it would look like I had a larger team. And what do you mean? And like now I go on, you know, like professional movie and TV uh, sets, you know, and I can't believe that there's like a PA helping the PA, you know, there's a PA right. whose only job is to get coffee for the assistant director. You know? So yeah, it was definitely, you know, I was definitely, making my own coffee <laughs> in fact my actresses used to like run after me and stuff a few pretzels in my hands because I would forget to eat and drink like I would get so into it I would just be like shooting for hours on set for like 12 hours and like if they stuffed three pretzels in my hand so I ate three pretzels you know but I was right just totally in the zone so um moving ahead the night before um the premiere oh my god I couldn't sleep and then I come to the premiere and I'm just praying that at the very least we're not a flop or, you know, or right. there shouldn't be like a huge protest outside the hall. We did it in like school auditoriums because, I mean, some of them can seat, you know, 500 people or more. Um, and I'll never forget, we did it in Besiakov Bar Park. I had been teaching there at the time, so they agreed to host my movie. Oh, we couldn't call it a movie. This is a very important point. We called it a drama on screen make it more uh -huh. acceptable also yes we, we would not say the word movie so it was a drama on screen i invented that term uh, and drama I, on screen wow right? <laughs> i gotta say that's a wonderful piece of like finessing right there <laughs> to make that acceptable term drama I, on screen Okay. Oh my God, you're going to a movie, honey? No, we can't go to a movie. Oh, hey, you know, Esty, you want to go to a drama on screen? Oh, sure. Okay. It rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. <laughs> I wanted to know, I called myself drama on screens for like at least the first five years. It took a while for anyone to be able to use the word. And then it became film. And film, I thought, was the acceptable movie. term now. No, because, yeah, film is fine, but, but not in 20, you know, 2006. Right. Right. Or even 2009, you know. Right. Um, so I came and I set up probably about 300 chairs and there were lines around the block. Wow. And we got more chairs and more chairs. And finally we found 400 chairs, but that wasn't enough. So we brought bleachers and the women were standing on bleachers and it was a two-hour full-length feature film I had some pregnant women standing on bleachers like I tried uh, to offer them a seat you know but it's also like like here it is my premiere of the movie that I wrote and directed and produced and, da -da, and I'm also running around asking people if they want a chair <laughs> it becomes a little ridiculous but can I just Baruch Hashem it was 
such a runaway smash, people appreciated it. They said, this is the first time I've been able to watch a drama on screen. <laughs> you know, I've never seen a movie before. And they really, I, I had women come up to me with tears in their eyes and like clasp my hands and thank me for it. And thank me for the token, like the meaning of the film itself, because it had a deep message about, you know, God putting you, Hashem putting you in places like where you can really achieve greatness, even though it could seem terrible. Um, it really touched a lot of people. And it was probably like almost tied with my wedding day as like the best day of my life. <laughs> so, Baruch Hashem. We, we just add more, we added more and more shows and we ended up, goodness, in probably, I would say 40 cities around the world. And we ended up giving High Lifeline tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm very proud that this was so groundbreaking that the next year somebody else made a movie. And the following year, another from woman made a movie and then another one. And then it just became acceptable. Like it became the thing to do that, oh, I'm Colin you go watch a movie. Like if you ask a person in Lakewood or Muncie, or like, you know, what do you do Colin Like it's a very normal thing to say, oh, there's a new movie by so-and-so out. I'm going to go watch it. Um, so right. And like this whole, I, I will, I, I do have to confess something here. Um, as someone, like I said, my Queens is showing. Um, I, <laughs> as, as someone who like did grow up with like internet and TV and like what we would call traditional movies and, you know, like with access to all of those other forms of entertainment, um, I don't really ever, like I don't listen to Jewish music and I don't watch Jewish movies. And I don't, and like, and I, and I will admit that I have like a little bit of a, I was like, oh, for, you know, from movies are not good. Um, that's, that, that's, oh, like yeah. a, that's, yeah. Like I mean, I, I have a hard time watching from movies myself. I, I, I'm very, <laughs> a little bit of like a, like a movie snob. I'm very picky. I'm very critical. Um, one of the issues in the genre is that it a little bit exploded and everyone was like, oh, Roni made a movie. I can make a movie. I can, you know, so right. you had a lot of people who, yeah, it makes perfect sense that they were untrained. They're Orthodox people. They're not going to film school. Um, I think I would, you know, kind of humbly say like, not everybody should be making a movie. Like, <laughs> just because, listen, the same just can because be said you're about Orthodox and, and you think it's fun. It's also, by the way, a lot of people come to me complaining like it wasn't fiscally viable like Kanainahara, like I made back my money in spades and I, you know, I gave it to High Lifeline and Bar Hashem. Like that was and finally they said, Hey Roni, take take a salary for yourself, you know. So I bought myself a drum set because I play the drums. So I bought myself my first Pearl drum set. <laughs> with my <laughs> money. Awesome. But, but I mean the same yeah, thing you said, I you. mean, you didn't go to film school. You know, you had, you know, you had this experience with the play. I actually went to film school afterwards. I went to NYFA, New York Film Academy, after I made my movies. And I'm so glad I didn't go before because ignorance is bliss. And I probably would have been too intimidated, you know. So there is such a thing as, you know, just diving in. But I will say there there are some people who, sh you know, just have it and should be making movies. And, and there are some people that maybe should stick to other professions. So it could, I wouldn't say all from movies are terrible, but I will validate that because it's kind of like an unchecked resource or medium, you know? I'll and tell you what it is also, what, what just occurred to me as we're- 
Well, yeah, I, I was just going to finish this thought because the film community is so hungry for entertainment. Right. People will will watch most things. So a critical person will say, ooh, I didn't like that. But, you know, a person for whom this is their like one source of entertainment per year, they won't be looking at the exact dialogue or, you know, did the plot have enough complexity or they'll just be like, wow, that was a fun outing with my friends. Does, does that make right. sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And and there's definitely, I can recognize that I'm not the intended audience here. You know, right. as much as I am a firm woman, I am not closed off in that way. So for, so this is not intended for me and I can fully appreciate that. But I, what also, you know, just occurred to me now is that in a lot of ways, the barrier to entry, if you are from and you want to make something for the from community, the barrier to entry is very low. You will in a lot right. of ways, almost kind of immediately get that stamp of approval if you are from the community making something for the community. So in right. and, and the and fantastic- the bar, the bar is very low also in terms right. of, like I said, in terms of plot, in terms of acting ability. It's not like uh, these audience members watch Hollywood movies and say, wait a minute, your acting is fake. And the movie I saw at, you know, AMC last week, that that was realistic, solid acting. And this acting is fake. My pet peeve is fake acting. Um, <laughs> they, they will just say, oh, they were so dramatic, you know? Right. That, like that's, like, that's how you are on right. a stage. Right, exactly. Right, so right, it's, right, it's, right. It's, it's a different kind of thing. And kind of the beauty of it is the fact that the barriers to entry are so low. And that also means, you know, the fact that anyone can do it is fantastic. And that also means, like you said, that some people who maybe shouldn't still, right. you know, go ahead and do it. Right. Um, and there's an innocence, a beautiful innocence to the audience members. Like I'm, I'm definitely not condemning them or like mocking them in any way. They, they're they happy with this, you know, they right. think that, that, that it's fine. And maybe someone who watches uh, professional movies would have a little more of a critical sense. But like you said, it's it's not really directed at them. It's, right. it's directed for people who, who are happy with you know, something interesting and a, and a lovely night out. Right. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. So after Ink, what happened? Okay, so after Ink, I made another movie. Um, and then and that opened in 70 cities worldwide. Baruch Hashem, that was really cool. Um, and then after that, a bi-coastal Hollywood production company, um, bi-coastal means they also have audiences in New York and they're based in Hollywood, called me and said, like, pretty much we heard your, like, and a big entertainment force in the Orthodox world. And we would like to do um, a new show involving Orthodox people. And we're not really gaining entry into Orthodox society because when, I don't know, Caitlin calls up and you know, asks and you know, doesn't have the lingo, it doesn't, they, they feel, that, you know, feel a little wary and we're, we're not really getting entry into Orthodox, the Orthodox world. And this was going to be um, a docu-series, like a reality show. So they asked me to work on the show as a producer and as, as someone like sort of like a liaison to the community, especially um, helping with casting. So um, I did. And they were shopping around. They were just creating the show. They did not yet have a network that, you know, bought in and, and agreed with the show, that agreed to air the show. Um, I worked on it in pre-production and production, but not post-production. They were actually just like making what's called a sizzle reel, which is like a trailer that you then shop around to different networks and see if anyone's interested in 
buying the show and you know creating what their full eight episodes um but the way they edited the sizzle reel was really not to my liking i i didn't have so much of a say in that and honestly i felt it it was a little cheesy and the show was perhaps rightfully not picked up and then after that i got like my first taste of you know working in tv um and i said to myself you know this show with its spin and, and the way it was done wasn't right but maybe i can go to a production company with an idea for a different show and maybe i can you know work on that and you know have it have it done to my liking and um yeah maybe that would be successful so i did so i uh pitched a concept for a show um it later became called arranged it was about I'm going to say arranged marriages, but I'm putting the word arranged in quotation marks. Um, <clears throat> the idea of traditional marriages, because I noticed growing up in Philly, we have Indian next door neighbors. And the same way we do shidduchim, like with a, you know, a shadchan, a matchmaker, and it's kind of like a prescribed way in the family has somewhat of an influence in the shidduch. Um, in the Indian culture, there's that as well. So I realized that there could this this idea again. I'm using the word arranged loosely, but this idea of arranged marriages could be seen across cultures. Um, and when I realized that, so I approached a production company with the idea of doing a show featuring several different cultures that do what we're saying as loosely uh, arranged marriages. And they liked that idea. They had been thinking of something similar, actually. And they said, you know what, sounds good. How about you be a development producer on the show and help develop the show? So that's what I did. So now this time I was creating the sizzle reel. I was casting the Orthodox people um, in it and having them talk about their experiences and um, helping to edit it and, you know, working through it. And then we were offering it to different networks and we ended up getting picked up by FYI. And it was a show called Arranged and it ran for three seasons on FYI. And we had an Orthodox couple, we had an Indian couple, we had a gypsy couple, uh, we had a Southern couple, an American couple. So uh, yeah, that was really cool. So that brought me like, like if, you know, directing my 12th grade high school play got me like the, the play directing bug. So this got me a little bit the, the television bug or the, you know, Hollywood bug. Yeah, I, I hear that. I want to pause for a second to, to, to talk about something related, but slightly different. And that is, <clears throat> you know, we know that the Orthodox community as a whole is generally displayed in a super stereotypical way you know when, <laughs> very much so <laughs> right like there's generally this very limited view of orthodoxy given um you know in tv and movies um and i'm curious to what extent do you feel a responsibility to give accurate portrayals of the community like are you worried that the work that you're doing is just increasing people's stereotypes and is just making people not like orthodox jews more 
oh, well, that is actually like one of the reasons I wake up in the morning, I would say, mm-hmm. like, I can't overstate this. I feel that, like you were alluding to earlier, um, you know, there's great responsibility if, if you're put into any position of, you know, being able to make a difference. Um, this is why I do what I do. And this is my single-minded goal. Like if I had to distill my purpose into one sentence, I would say if Hashem, you know, put me in a place where I can make a change in this regard, like that's why I'm here. And I will, you know, do everything possible in my power to counteract the negative stereotypes because I think it is deplorable. I think it's awful and horrible and a complete double standard. I think no other community is depicted uniformly negative in the media. No other community would stand for being depicted uniformly negative in the media. Why do you think that we put up with it? I, I um I think that a lot of times the people who are and and I just want to go back and just say that I, I really do stress the word uniformly because it's fine if you show a negative portrayal of an orthodox person and then two weeks later you show a positive portrayal. You show a, a negative portrayal of a Hispanic person and then two weeks later you show a positive portrayal. It's all about the balance because yeah, there's good people and bad people in every society. But when you're bombarded with 100% negativity about a very insular hard to understand community, then it's natural that, you know, Bob in Sioux City, Iowa is going to have a negative impression of the Orthodox community. That's all he sees. Like you almost can't blame him, which you can make a direct link to the rise in anti-Semitism. So to answer your question, why do you think, I think the community that's portrayed most negatively, which is the ultra-Orthodox or very Orthodox people, don't forget, they don't have media, they don't have social media, they don't watch TV, they don't watch movies. They, they're not active in that sphere. So, you know, it's not like they all saw, I don't know, un- my unorthodox life, and now they're going to rise up against it. Like, they heard about it third hand, and they're upset, but I don't know, how do you, how do you change Hollywood? Like, they're so far removed from that world. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. And also, I think the Orthodox community, I mean, it could be tied to why is there anti-Semitism? Why, why do people feel free to beat up a Hasidic men on the streets of Williamsburg and there's barely any repercussion? And if you did that to any other minority, like consistently, oh my God, there would be rallies and maybe even riots, you know? So I, I feel that we don't raise our voices enough, honestly. Yeah, so. it's. I mean, that's the truth is that we... I think that we take it. I think we just complain to each other in shul and then we move on with our business. But we don't. I always say, like, there should be a rally when a Jew is beat up in Williamsburg, just walking down the street, just literally walking down the street. And he's punched in the head 10 times. There should be a giant rally. He's hit with a brick. Somebody just this week was sprayed with a chemical and then punched in the head. 66-year-old man just walking down the street in Brooklyn, minding his own business. There should be a rally. There should be megaphones. There should be signs. People should stop traffic. Like, we need our own version of, like, Black Lives Matter. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. We just just complain to each other. We're just not naturally yellers. I know. know know. Like, the idea of there being, I mean, like, in Israel, you hear about Hafkanahs, about protests all the time. but, But here, it's just... I think that to a certain extent, we have kind of fooled ourselves into thinking that if we just like keep our head down, 
and mind right. our own business and do right. our own thing, then people will just leave us well, alone. Well, that's gullus. That's gullus. That's like the definition of gullus. We're in gullus. And okay, this is exile and exile is right. rough. You know, that's, yeah. But yeah. um, I, I think right, so we, we strayed a little bit into like current events, but I think it's very tied to the same kind of shoulder shrugging. And Ive, what are we going to do? It's gullus. Of course, they make the Jews look bad. But I wake up in the morning and I say, no, I want to change that portrayal. I want to show positive portrayal or at the very least neutral portrayals of Orthodox people. Like at this point, I'd be happy with just a neutral portrayal of a regular guy. He has his faults, he has his good points, you know, but he's but not specifically the abusers and the most dysfunctional people because all the portrayals you see are of dysfunction, which every community has. The difference is you don't see the counterbalance to it. There are dysfunctional Black people and dysfunctional Muslim people and dysfunctional Chinese people. Like every single race and nationality has abusive dysfunctional people. The difference is you don't get a steady drumbeat and steady diet 100% of only seeing the dysfunction. Right. So that's the difference. So when you said, could it be misconstrued? Um, could my work be misconstrued? I make it my mission and goal every single day to keep that lodestar in mind and say to myself, you know, can, like, like what you said, can what I'm doing be misconstrued? How do I make sure it's not? How do I make sure that, you know, if, if we show some negative aspect of the Orthodox Jew, there are some positive ones to also balance him out. How do we make sure there are no caricatures and stereotypes um, on screen? And that's, hugely on my mind and I'm very proud that you know there were beautiful social media comments for the show arranged saying like wow the orthodox couple was so sweet or I didn't realize they could be so nice to each other you know right. I mean things that we take for granted for any other like <laughs> group of people but here it was like wow Baruch Hashem thank god they're they're actually seeing a normal orthodox but that, that was the very first orthodox couple to ever appear on reality TV So that was like my second first. <laughs> the second that's, first that's, actually, that's actually pretty cool. Um, I, I want to know, I, I want to, I know that you can't tell me much, but I am going to be annoying and I'm going to ask you questions that you can't answer about the project <laughs> that you're working on now. How, how, I'm just going to say like, what, what can you tell me? Cause I know that you're working on something now and I'm going to assume that it's pretty cool. So <laughs> what, <Thank you. laughs> what can you tell me? What can you tell me and what can I nudge you about what you're working on right now? Okay, so I'm working on um, a project for a major uh, streaming service and it's pretty major. And, <laughs> and we've been picked up um, for eight episodes about Shaduchim in a nutshell, about Jewish. Oh, nuts. yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, nobody likes doing it, but it's fun right. to talk about, and I'm sure it's certainly <laughs> fun to watch. Shadokhan, for anyone who's not um, familiar, is matchmaking, and it's right. like Orthodox dating, and this is going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> it is fun. I mean, the the early cuts I've seen have been so awesome, um, and I'm really excited. And like I said, I'm really excited to have a three-dimensional orthodox couple um there's there's a guy there's a girl um they're looking for their shit you know they're looking for their bashar looking for marriage did you follow um, and, people on dates yes 
Yes. Oh, how many hotel lounges were you in? <laughs> they're, um, the office they're professional and they, they love being orthodox. They don't have a chip on their shoulder. They're not like, oh, I hate it and I escaped and finally I'm happy, which I always say, like a show about, you know, a Muslim woman who rips off her hijab and starts eating pork and she's finally happy. Like that would never be human. Like, that would be unacceptable. They would say it's, it's homophobic, like it's just so, so wrong, you know, to make such light of a beautiful culture. But it's just so normal to show that the Orthodox woman rips off her wig and, you know, doesn't keep Shabbos anymore and finally she finds happiness. So I wanted to make sure that we had Orthodox people who are proud to be Orthodox and do keep mitzvahs and, you know, the commandments. And, and they're, they're happy, successful people. I love that. I cannot wait to watch this show, which, you know, when it comes out, we'll all hear about it. So like, we don't even need to, yeah, yeah, trust probably. me, you'll all know, check your local WhatsApp status and you'll, and you'll find early, it. Early next year. Yeah. End of, end of this year, early next year. We're hoping for that. Oh, I'm excited. Um, this, <laughs> this was so fun, Ronit. If somebody wants to learn more about you, you um, or, you know, or about what you do, where can they go? Okay, so uh, my website is flyingsparksproductions.com, like sparks are flying, um, or they can, I guess, reach out to you and you can put them in touch with me, especially if there's a new project that they'd like to discuss, because I'm always open to new ideas. Okay, so the, there you go. There you have it. The last thing that I want to ask you, Ronit, is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Wow, that's such a good question. Oh, can I just go back and say one thing that I forgot? I also rent out my scripts. We were talking about this of schools and mm -hmm. how I direct, but I rent my plays worldwide. They've been translated into German for Switzerland and Yiddish for Hasidic schools and Hebrew. Um, and I have like a whole portfolio of scripts that Baruch Hashem every single year four or five schools call me and they put on my plays so if anybody has connections to a school and wants a really good script um maybe they could for simplicity do you mind if they contact you and then you'll give them my contact that works info? yeah sure okay awesome okay now to your important question um what does it mean to me to make an impact was that the question mm -hmm. um gosh i i have high standards so I would say to change the world in some way, um, to feel that you're changing the world in some way. My particular favorite way to feel like I'm changing the world is to make a Kiddush Hashem. Um, how do you translate Kiddush Hashem? Basically- a Kiddush Hashem is to give someone a, a positive, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, a positive you, impression of Jewish life, basically. Right, right, a positive impression. Like there's so much beauty here that people don't know about. Um, so if I can help make a positive impact and a positive impression of Jewish life, um, for the outside world, that's super important to me. And I think very impactful. And then within the Jewish community, the way I like to make an impact is through my plays and films. It's very important for me that they have a strong message and like, I'm not just feeding people like fluff, you know, popcorn, but I'm giving them like a steak dinner, you know, I have a responsibility. I have thousands of people worldwide, like hearing my words and, and watching what I've staged. So they should come away. They should come away better. They should come away with food for thought, come away having learned something and having gained something. 
and, and having grown. So I really try to like style my stories around an impactful message. And uh, that's my honor to do so. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Ronit. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Ronit, her links are in the show notes. On the last episode, I went solo to share my thoughts on pricing and sales. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 17 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Esquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.